Hello. Welcome to Looks Unfamiliar, the show that remembers that Mr. Blobby had a second tilt at the festive charts with Christmas in Blobbyland in 1995, and wishes it didn't remember that, but it won't go away. I'm Gareth Hirons, and joining me today on this festive special to talk about exactly one thing that they remember, that nobody else ever seems to, is writer and TV's claggers expert, Tim Worthington. Tim! What are you up to and where can we find it? Well, obviously, normally I'm hosting this. Possibly by the time it goes out, my new anthology, Keep Left Swipe Right, might be out. But otherwise, you can find me at timworthington.org where you can find more editions of Looks Unfamiliar, more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks, my Marvel podcast, and lots of writing about, at the moment, it seems to be mainly Doctor Who and books are found in charity shops. So there's a lot of crossover there, really, that I've neglected to explore. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Well, we We've only got the one thing to discuss today, and I don't believe that anybody feels the way we do about it now. So strike up the sound superb and get out your best velour garments, because we're going groovy this Christmas. That the fire in your heart is out I'm sure you've heard it before But you've never really had a doubt I don't believe that anybody Feels the way I do about you And all the roads that lead us there Are winding And all the lights that light the way are blinding There are many things that I would like to say to you But I don't know how Baby Are you gonna be the one that saves me? And after all, you're my wonder wall. Well, Tim, what was that? Well, that was the Mike Flowers Pops covering Wonderwall by Oasis, but I've not specifically chosen that, even though, you know, you don't hear it as much as you should do now. But, you know, people do still remember it. They're still aware it was a thing. I've chosen the CD single of Wonderwall for two reasons. One, that as an item, it itself and its B-sides are almost completely forgotten. You know, it was one of the biggest hits of the 90s. But also, the idea of CD singles full stop 
in the you know they're long since obsolete and these days when you see one in the charity shop or it's you know like a an all stars or a sean mcguire one with two remixes on the b-side and you think who actually spent actual money on that and then you realize that you know i spent loads of money on loads of cd singles which i don't have all of them now but i did keep a lot of the ones where you know either it had a track on it that i wanted to keep for some specific reason you know like a super grass b-side that didn't end up on any of the reissues or anything or we're actually thought I really like that and I will probably listen to that in full again and surprising amount that I do because it makes me think of it's a bit like when DVDs first appeared and the Kindle I suppose CDs there's a weird thought that came into people's heads where it's sort of I can rationalise my collection they will only release things on this exciting new format that I actually want you know the complete opposite happened everyone had like basically an avalanche waiting to happen of well CD singles in particular you know I've kept quite a few I mean, just some examples would be the Bell and Sebastian ones were always really good. The popular community song CD, there you go, CD by Blur, which this is emblematic of the fact. I think some people thought in terms of the CD single as a format first and foremost. I'd say Oasis were the biggest for that because I was never a big fan of them. But, you know, you would get, as well as the A side, three really interesting B sides that were clearly, there was rare stuff, there was early stuff, there were live tracks, and they were thinking of something where they could put four tracks on. They weren't, ironically, with the Beatles worship. They weren't fetishizing the seven inch. They were not thinking the cast single first and foremost. I don't think anyone ever did that. But yeah, Blur did the popular community song CD, which was Sunday Sunday, and that's the B sides Daisy Bell, which people might know the title, but that's Daisy Daisy, give me a round. So they do it like that. They do like a sort of mob punk thing, and they also do Let's All Go Down the Strand on it as well. Fanfare by Eric Matthews, which was that means a lot to me. It's sort of American indie single from the mid nineties where Mark Radcliffe played it first time he heard it very late tonight on radio one very late in 1995 and he paused for like a fraction of a second and said i'm playing that again and he did it was that good all of the elastica ones really good suede loads of saint etienne ones indian vibes which is the sort of acid jazz sitar dance track that paul weller did and i've got both releases of that still banging around by me 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 <laughs> Alex James from Blur Supergroup, which had, I don't like the A side that much, but the two B sides, Hollywood Wives and Tabitha's Island, are both really good. I've still got the Beatles, Free as a Bird and Real Love, because they have B sides on them that have never appeared in anything else, including that Yellow Submarine starts with Ringo's monologue, where it's something like, to a submarine we march and go, an autograph shall more be now, or something like that. <laughs> And yeah, the Mike Flowers Pops ones, I've kept all of them, but it's Wonderwall in particular that really does mean a bit to me. I should say I have also kept This Is The Sound Of Youth by These Animal Men. Can you remember what the B-sides were on that? Is it Soul Around The World and Hooligans, Hooligans Progress? Progress. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even sure Hooligan remembers how Hooligans Progress goes. <laughs> But this CD single, as well as I love all three tracks on it, and it reminds me of a very specific time, more than anything else that's held up with Emblematic of that era. Excellent. And just pausing to ask if you want to go back and talk about Hooligan's Progress anymore? 
No? Okay, cool. Well, we'll move on. We should progress some hooligan. It's what he would have wanted. So yeah, so Wonderwall by the Mike Flowers Pops. Not to be mistaken for Wonderwall by Oasis, which was released, uh, I think, on the 30th of October in 1995. Wonderwall, I guess we don't really have to introduce, but it's a song that almost, as much as I didn't like Oasis at the time, it seized the Zeekeist so hard that it felt like it had always been there. So the fact that this came out seven weeks later, it was already odd a classic by the time this came out yes it was everywhere it was an instant sort of i mean i said i'm not i was never that big a fan of oasis i love wonderwall as a song because it is really and it's so restrained as well unlike a lot of their other material they don't go over the top on it it picks a mood and it stays with it and i think it's a really really well written song as well evidenced by the fact that somebody could do what some people see as a jokey light music version of it and i would say that's even i think it comes across as an even better song in this incarnation controversial statements i know but i think noel gallagher might actually agree with that well actually i don't think noel gallagher would agree with that but I think there's plenty that would Noel Gallagher of course known for his love of Burt Bacharach Mm. which kind of leads me to element two of this so element one is this song by Oasis a kind of a Britpop more of a a rock band I guess sort of already with classic rock tendencies even when contemporary and then we get the unlikely threatened lounge revival of the early to mid 90s about which I'm sure you can say more than me yeah I think it's it's been very misrepresented and misunderstood because I think people have to understand where it actually came from which is it's all it's one of the very last examples of people somehow all discovering something at the same time in different parts of the country unaware of each other and I will come back to that it sort of came out of the you know what led into Britpop was people you know thinking I don't much like what's going on at the moment I'm going to listen to the kinks instead and it then diversified further into there have been people who were into this it was called Exotica to begin with you know and it encompassed things like French pop records from the 60s and film soundtracks and so on as well Northern Soul I think which is still seen as a bit of an obscurity a bit of an outlier in those days was sort of adopted and subsumed as that it chimed with a lot of what some of the acid jazz bands were doing like the James Taylor Quartet and Jamiroquai to an extent early on I was quite amused the other day when on the top of the hops repeats on BBC4 Stillness in Time which which I really, really like, was on. And somebody said on Twitter, quite enjoying the temporary fault vibe to this. <laughs> but there was, you know, there was this whole world of ignored music, what you might call temporary fault music, you know, or not quite elevator music, but you know, it was mainly records were made in the 60s by the same sort of band leaders who did arrangements of people like the Kinks, who then did their own albums. And you would have funny arrangements of Beatles songs on them and so on. It's odd. It started with, as far as I'm concerned, people swapping tapes where, you know, you would get somebody would do you a compilation. They'd put on, say, maybe the theme from Man Alive by Tony Hatch or a Jacques de Tronc record on, you know, in amongst everything they knew you'd like. And it sort of went out from there. But there were people who, because obviously the age I was at, this is when people started going out to indie clubs and so on. And people were putting on nights playing this stuff, which, you know, I played at some of them. Then in Select Magazine, first they ran the feature on Radio Tips who we might come back to which is a sort of pirate station in London playing all this stuff with two guys calling themselves Kid Tempo and the Ginger Prince who'd adopted kind of loungy personas but also there was a feature about a club in London called Blow Up 
which very heavily featured a good friend of mine, Andy Lewis, who has been on Looks Familiar, who, as far as I'm concerned, is the he's the fulcrum of all of this. He turned it into a movement, really, simply just by playing records because he thought they were good and other people might like them. I'm led to believe by people who were there. Blow Up in the early days was packed out, and it was hot just from... I don't think the place even had any central heating, but, you know, so many people in there having such a good time. Apparently, everyone was, like, roasting and drenched in sweat when they came out into the cool night air, which, when I say that, it doesn't sound very <laughs> romanticised or exotic, but you know what I mean? That is the sort of thing where you think, I wish I'd been there. It didn't feel like, oh, these people from elsewhere are stealing our ideas. It felt like brilliant other people get it. And then, the sort of bands that were going to places like Blow Up started. It started creeping into the music. I mean, the most obvious examples would be like Pulp and Saint Etienne, but there's a lot of easy listening on, I'd say, Blur Between Modern Life is Rubbish and The Great Escape. You know, there's a lot of schmaltzy trumpets and the kind of keyboards that you get on those sort of records. Obviously, Oasis, it's been sort of written out history now, but yeah, there's a Burt Bacharach album on the cover of Definitely Maybe, and Noel used to go on about how when he was learning to write songs, he used to zero in on what made the Bacharach and David songs work so well. And also, Half a World Away, which obviously was on the CD single of whatever, history has changed now. What people think of that as is the theme from the royal family. But initially, it was the song where he's really pulled off trying to do Burt Bacharach. That was how it was regarded at the time. It filtered into everything, really. I mean, you know, we're both very big fans of men's work. What happens at the end of Sleeping In? All kinds of flutes and trumpets come in. Yes! Very yes. much in that sort of the whatever orchestra play the hits of Donovan style. Very probably down to the kick horns as well, Britpop's official horn section. Yes, well, they probably played on the modern day equivalents of this record in between playing on Suede and Blur sessions, I'd imagine. I've always been, people are mystified by this, but as much as you know my main area of interest is 60s music, I'm always looking for something new as well. And there are, you know, even now there's still explored areas, like Trunk Records is a brilliant series of compilations called Brit Zotica, which was, you know, in the sort of late 50s, early 60s, you got a lot of British band leaders doing like Hawaiian-themed records and mock kind of like the Sphinx Won't Tell by the Beverly Sisters. That's, yeah, you know, yeah. it's like exotic. So there was always new things, but this was all new stuff at the time. Nobody had heard half of these things that people were finding by rooting around in charity shops and pulling out Studio 2 stereo EMI albums. So there were compilations like the Sound Gallery, the Sound Spectrum, This Is Easy, which if anyone wants to know exactly why I'm so excited about all this, I'd say track down This Is Easy, the original version from 1996, not the sort of revised one they did later, which is a bit more sort of advert friendly but I mean that's the thing you got a lot of this stuff started turning up on adverts you got the weird situation where TV themes became new TV themes again most famously Man in the Suitcase being used for TFI Friday but that happened a lot and it was just a very exciting time but unfortunately like all of these things it got so big that I mean I, I largely blame Chris Evans for this it became too ironic it became something you know that was like ha ha giggle and I'd say when it was first starting up if the press went to somebody to talk about it, it would be, say, Jarvis Cocker or Ben or Scott from Corduroy or Johnny Dean from Menswear. You know, somebody who was actually into this stuff and had, you know, a persona and a look that they cultivated. But towards the end, I remember, you know, that you get in the club guides in Loaded, there'd be an interview with somebody calling themselves Miguel, who was in a sort of ill-fitting safari suit and trying to talk in a European accent, like somebody out of a very bad film you'd get on ITV in the afternoons. And that sort of... And I'm not going to say it ruined it, because 
that doesn't, you know, that's not the impression I want to give people that haven't think about it. But that was kind of like, this is over as a thing, isn't it? We need to move on to something else. But I still love all that music. I mean, I've talked on here when they've been a guest previously about the in-flight entertainment albums, which I still think for amazing compilations. And I still listen to all that music a lot. And that was the last great, you know, sort of something coming from nowhere excitement for the internet changed the way that happened. I think after the Lounge Revival itself collapsed under its own weight, and thanks very much to Mr. Evans, as you noted, I think some of it, some of the iconography did continue on, and some of the instrumentation as well. I shudder to think of the big beat scene of the late 90s, but there was a lot of the old kind of 60s and 70s early electronic instruments in that, and a lot of the kind of fonts and styles and oh, colours as well. Oh, a lot of well. samples as well were, you know, yeah, Fat yeah. Boy Slim around that era was using all this stuff. So, it, so I think it, it, did, it did go on in a way. The 90s were very, very good, as much as you know, they were my glory days, as it were. Were very, very good at recycling and regurgitating the past. And if it wasn't in quite as explicit a way as the lounge revival that kind of never was, then I do think a lot of that carried on. Yes, and also there was a weird subset, which I think Mike Flowers gets lumped in with. We will have to talk about who he was and where he came from in a minute. but Oh yeah, that could be an idea. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of sort of easy listening characters from around this time. Lenny Beige which Steve first did. There was Bob Down, Radio Tip Top who were mentioned. Tony Farino who was a Steve Coogan character who again I've got the CD single of Help Yourself is one of the ones I've kept and I think that illustrates what he got wrong with that character was the narrative of him being this you know sort of Eurovision type crooner who had a very murky past and his brothers who he used to sing with had all disappeared in mysterious circumstances and his backing dancers kept having to leave the troupe because they got pregnant and things like that and the original songs are hilarious as well the problem is they put things like him doing help yourself into it and they put that front and center and that's just that's just steve coogan singing help yourself mm. no that doesn't really work but i've still got that it's got big me at christmas as the other track on it which isn't on the album well we're about to look obviously at the mike flowers pops wonderwall cd and that features a couple of originals from them as well which will be a nice contrast for us to take a look over but I think you're quite right we should probably talk about who is this Mike Flowers well Mike Flowers is actually a guy called Mike Roberts who's a very prolific arranger again you know usually working on things like soundtracks and what are the modern day equivalents of easy listening collections and so on but he formed the Mike Flowers Pops I think in the early 90s so with a degree of irony but also as we'll come back to it's a very in a sense a serious musical project because obviously he loved this stuff and he loved arranging things in this way and it was quite a large ensemble they also had the sound superb singers who my favourite fact about them was was a trio of women who later turned up on Katie Puckrick at the late night ITV show called Pajama Party where people <laughs> like Catelyn Moran and Lush would be on in dressing gowns you know sort of doing very forced girly material items with them but the sound superb singers were on it every week doing their arrangement of things like The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway by Genesis <laughs> I remember having hysterics at that because they're taking this you know really complex complicated prog rock song and we're doing it like the singers in the middle of the Paul Daniels show might do. <laughs> but I think the Mike Flowers Pops were quite sort of popular on the live circuit, particularly in London and particularly at universities. And they had already done a single backing a guy called Count Indigo, who was a host at a lot of these easy listening nights in London and was a friend of Stuart Lee and Richard Herring. And they mentioned him quite a lot on the Radio 1 show from around that time. He did a song called My Unknown Love. I know one or two things about love. Loving and losing, 
loving and keeping. But of course, love is truly unknown. single again still got that that was very much viewed though even though it you know had this loungy soul backing it was classed as a dance record even though it's you know not that dancey and the reviews that were all on the dance pages in melody maker and nme that shows that at that point people were taking this seriously but what happened then was kevin greening who again was a, a radio one dj who i think was never really used to his full potential he was very early on i think he joined radio one in 1993 i think he'd been at glr before that he used you know things like the it's all at the co-op now advert you know to back sketches and things and there's musical beds he used all kinds of like odd bits of easy listening he was a real sort of pioneer for you know getting these sounds out there but in 1995 he invited mike flowers to do covers of wonderwall and venus as a boy for his show and wonderwall was so there was so much response to that that it was sort of rush released on london records and it all came out of that basically it obviously uses vastly different instrumentation to the original where it's actually less beatlesy for being more retro which is a bit odd it's got the whole simulated needle drop and record noise at the start as well just to really put you in the mind of it and it also trashes most of the verses there is barely any of the verse of wonderwall on this song i would say it's as different from the original as to almost be a completely different song it's not like ryan adams changing a couple of vocal inflections and deciding he's reinvented it yeah i say that i i've always felt not necessarily the aesthetically best cover version but the best cover versions were you could almost say there were two different songs I mean, the best example of that to me is always Ruby Tuesday by the Rolling Stones by Melanie could be two different songs. And I think that's true here. And like you say, it does dispense with most of the verses, which is an interesting and deliberate choice. And we might have more to say about some of his interesting deliberate choices with other people's material down the line. But I still love this CD single. And I was surprised you'd never heard the B-sides. And you sent me a message saying they're brilliant. They absolutely are. Just before we move on to them, I would like to share one anecdote. Kat, my girlfriend, hello Kat, if you're listening, is a big Oasis fan, but had not heard the Mike Flowers Pops version of Wonderwall before. So I I played this to her yesterday, and I was really pleased to know that she kind of laughed at the exact same moment where I had laughed listening to it for the first time in 1995, which is the cheeky little sting after he says, you're my Wonderwall, which is as far removed as you can possibly get 
get from anything Oasis have ever done, essentially. It's the moment where it really escapes the shadow of the rendition by its original artist and becomes its own thing. Yes, absolutely. It's a little bit like Hootmon by Lord Rock and Gums 11, which I imagine was probably deliberate. So let's talk about those B-sides, though, which are Son of God and Theme from Memory Man, one of which is vocal and one of which is instrumental. How can he Son of God is a duet with Juliet from the Sound Superb Singers, and it's a brilliant pastiche of like an early 70s rock opera. It is sort of, I assume it's Jesus and Mary Magdalene singing about their love for each other, but how it can't be. It's actually, it's not funny. There's lines like, this morning in the marketplace I saw your face amongst the crowd. It's very sincere, and it could be the genuine article. And it's got a lovely sort of church organ in the background as well. It was written by Mike Flowers, as was Theme for Memory Man. I found it surprisingly poignant. Yes, it really is. It's very, very well put together, especially kind of, I'm not going to say all B-sides from the 90s, but as you touched on, CD singles, at one stage, there would be two CDs released of a lot of the bigger singles because they would both be chart eligible as separate formats. And that led to the musical equivalent of shovelware in a lot of cases. You've heard there me were... by Blur as well, have you? I may have done. I may well have done, yes. And, and while certain bands and obviously I've got to say Suede at this stage, but I'll throw Super Furry Animals in there. And as we said earlier, Oasis really seemed to take pride in making sure that every song on the package was a great song. And I've just remembered Eno's introducing the band, so I may have to backpedal on that in Suede's case. But yeah, there were some that just didn't bother. So to hear a band taking pride in their B-sides again, it's, it's just really nice. And theme from Memory Man. Again, it's entirely convincing. It could be the theme from one of those early 70s films with a sort of glistening roulette wheel in the opening credits and, you know, about a British secret agent who, obviously in this case, he could remember things. <laughs> is it an Andrew <laughs> Collins origin story? It does sound a bit like it's going to turn into the Phantom of the Opera a few times, but once it gets past that, and especially the end where it goes really sinister, yeah. I really enjoyed that. There's a lot of instrumentation on here, and I, I touched on that a little bit earlier when we were talking about Big Beat, but like, add end to X, for instance, would use a lot of these kind of obscure electronic instruments that seem to be being used on this. It's both behind and ahead of its time. It really is. And like I say, the three tracks work together really well because I can remember, because obviously this came out just before Christmas in 1995. And I remember being at home in my sort of teenage bedroom over that Christmas, listening to this CD single over and over again. The other thing I listened to a lot that Christmas was there was a series on Radio 4 called Trump and Riot, which 
which is about culty old children's TV, where it had clips of things like finger bobs, where, you know, it had music that was adjacent to this sort of music. In the, you know, just little glimpses, audio glimpses of like, you know, the music from Mr. Ben. And that was more what I'd listened to these documentaries for than, you know, I liked the content of them. But I remember going backwards and forwards on Flash's song from Finger Bobs and that sort of thing. You know, there was this sort of general feeling in the air, but endless amounts of times I listened to this single all the way through. Excellent. So we should probably talk a little bit about the cultural impact of this, because bizarrely, it did have one. This was released on the 18th of December 1995, and it got to number two in the notoriously crowded 1995 Christmas charts. Now, I don't want this to devolve into just me reading a list, but I'm going to read a list of the top ten, just to show what an achievement I think that was to be able to sort of hang in this company. So at number 10, we've got Eternal with I Am Blessed. Try and ignore that one, because really, if I could have done a top nine, I probably would have. At number nine, there's Robson and Jerome with I Believe. Notorious Christmas heavy hitters there. At eight, none other than The Beatles with Free as a Bird. At seven, Oasis with Wonderwall. At six, Coolio with Gangster's Paradise. At five, Everything But The Girl with Missing. It was never missing from the bloody radio, though, was it? In 95 and 96, any time I put Radio 1 on, I would hear that within two tracks of starting to listen. Anyway, number four, Bjork, It's Oh So Quiet. At three, Boyzone, Father and Son. Terrible, but did sell an awful lot. Then you've got Mike Flowers Pops at number two. And at number one, it's Earth Song by by A Turbo Nonce. But how popular are all of those songs? That that in itself could be a look back at the 90s compilation. I think it's amazing it got that high in the charts. One of my favourite memories of it is it being played in a legendary Liverpool club called Liquidation at Midnight on New Year's Eve that year. Or rather, New Year's Day. I don't know which way round that is. But, you know, it was like the whole place went up. Everyone loved it. It was one of those moments where it felt like we are getting somewhere in a way that the Blair Oasis chart battle hadn't because that sort of felt like it. nobody should have been fighting about who'd be number one. It should have been, isn't this exciting? There's two great bands in the top ten. But, you know, I actually saw almost fistfights over it that weekend. But this just felt like something, it pushed past the barriers into where it wasn't supposed to be. And was like, I'm a hit, what are you going to do about it? Those sort of moments where really exciting to just sort of lighten the mood after what was number one ahead of it do you know who declared this to be the funniest thing i've ever heard ah now yes my research did actually drag up this fact was it not old painty can Lou Reed? Reed? yes he said he hadn't heard any oasis but he had heard this version of wonderwall and described it as one of the funniest things he's ever heard in his life hang on how can he find it funny if he doesn't know this Far be it from me to doubt the cantankerous, deliberately difficult outsider that is Lou Reed, but to know that this is hilarious, you do have to have heard the original, so I'm calling shenanigans on him there. He used to laugh hysterically if somebody said to get to the other side, but not why is the chicken crossed the road. But yeah, unfortunately, as big as it got, the wheels came off very quickly because I think they made a number of mistakes. I think there could have been more mileage in the Mike Flowers pops. But I remember having an argument with someone at the time who just repeatedly said, when he does an album of pastiches in different styles, I'll be impressed. 
They're like, well, why do you have to be impressed? But why does he have to do that? I mean, you've already got 439 golden greats, never mind the originals, here's the heebie-jeebies, which, you know, is that. And I doubt this person will have heard. But, you know, it's an actual act. It was a band. It was a bit like if somebody had said, when these animal men do the theme from Charlie Chalk, I'll be impressed. But <laughs> there was that kind of, like, impression. It was just a joke. And I think that's the big mistake they made as a follow-on single was a double-A side of Release Me, as in the Engelbert Humberdink song, which obviously was being used as the theme for the fast show around that point. So that's a bit of a mistake if you don't want to be seen as a joke. And also, apparently, I don't remember this bit, the Boddington's beer commercial. I don't remember that oh. at all, but it was marketed on that basis. A double-A side with a cover of Light My Fire, which basically was like the Jose Feliciano version, but not as good. And I think that, when we come to what's on the B-side, you see why I think that was pandering to the wrong audience, because that was aiming at the sort of audience who move on very quickly when something else is a new big joke. And so there wouldn't be many people sort of rushing out to buy this. But the third track on the CD single of that is the Bowie medley. Have you ever heard that? No, no, I haven't. What does that entail? It has like Ashes to Ashes and Rebel Rebel. It also has TVC15. Oh! Which he has clearly picked because he's thought, how can I make this noisy, abrasive, ridiculous song into something that suits light music? And it really works. Really does. So, you know, he obviously, he was thinking, because on the album, a Groovy Place, which I'll come to in a minute, there's a similar Velvet Underground medley, which works really well. I wonder if Lou Reed saw the funny side of that. <laughs> but, you know, there was this imagination. These were the numbers that were really big live, because I saw them a few times. And it seemed to be those that were the most popular. And then the album A Groovy Place came out, which has a brilliant original title song, which is like something from one of those BBC Two light entertainment shows in the 60s, where it'd be, I don't know, the Engelbert Humperdinck show or something, or the Jose Feliciano show, where they come on and do a song about how amazing their jet-setting lifestyle was. So it's like that. There's a great instrumental called Free Bass. There's a cover in 1999, which introduces as a very good year for the Prince of Pop. It's genuinely a really good album. The only weak links really are Release Me and Light My Fire. The rest of it is, but there's a song called Krusty Girl about how he falls in love with the protester at the Newbury Bypass, which, you know, is funny and good. But I think because they've had that misstep with the following single, I think that's why it didn't take off. It seems a bit like someone at the record company maybe got the wrong idea about why Wonderwall had done so well. To me, it seems like there's a factor of it being alien, of it being completely completely so completely different to the original in a way that light my fire and particularly release me just wouldn't have been absolutely i think that's it it wasn't just a covers band an ironic covers band but i think a lot of people saw it as that including the idea of them having to do an album of pastiches in different styles but mm. that sort of finished it off really well i say that but there was a time when mike flowers himself was genuinely for about 18 months quite a big figure i remember seeing him on through the keyhole he's in austin powers international man of mystery he's in quite a few adverts one where he was somebody's blind date but the musical side of things seemed to disappear very quickly there was another single when Evita came out he did Don't Cry For Me Argentina as a medley with the Macarena <laughs> which sounds ridiculous but it really works and there's lyrics about Madonna's cinematic career which <laughs> she might not be very impressed by but again that had great B-sides it was Dreamt There Was Dreaming which is an instrumental and Give Her One For Christmas which is again it's a lovely sort of bittersweet narrative about how he gives this woman the ring for Christmas one year and next year he gives her a divorce and it's a really sad little lovely story song I think very few people heard that but then I think by then he was a bit fed up of it and he has actually said you know he felt it was time to retire the character and go back to his day job I suppose in a sense but a couple of years ago I was 
at the Shine On Festival, which is, for anyone who's not been, basically a load of indie bands take over a holiday camp for a weekend. You can accidentally miss the Jesus and Mary chain <laughs> <laughs> in the cafe because you'll be watching Thousand Yards Stare in the sauna or something. <laughs> but between Jesus Jones and Echo Belly, myself and Emma Burnell of this parish were hanging around, you know, in the main auditorium. On came, as a surprise guest, Mike Flowers, who did a couple of the songs just by himself with backing things. The people were, when they heard Wonderwall, people were flying in from all directions. He really enjoyed it. You know, he did some great banter and it was really warmly received and that was lovely to see. It kind of made me wish he'd do more, really. Well, I can understand being bored of the character, I suppose, especially if, if it was being projected in such a one-note way when there was clearly so much more that he was willing to do with it and able to do with it that could have been just so much more interesting. But it's really nice to hear that, you know, obviously still gets a good reception to this day. Well, absolutely. And I was so glad because it really does mean a lot to me. I mean, there's this, and I should just mention another CD single, which I still adore, which is there was a, you know, quite closely lined in some ways, an acid jazz band called Corduroy, who basically did imaginary 60s film soundtracks. One of the singles, Mini, which is the one that looked like it might do really well, but didn't ultimately. It's as much a love song to a car as it is to Mini Driver. There's a lot of puns in it. But one of the B-sides on that, Paper Money, was just such a big thing amongst a small number of people. I mean, I imagine my experience was, like I say, quite universal in other pockets of the country where you know just know about it in those days. But my main memory of that is that, you know, in those days in house parties, there would be different music in each room. In student parties, you know, there'd be a room with dance music in and, you know, whatever. But in the kitchen, which is always the best place to be, we'd always put on some wild sort of mod instrumentals and things like that. But Paper Money, I remember people just going insane to dancing around the kitchen, women dancing really funkily and so on. And I love that for that reason. That reminds me of that time. But Wonderwall and Two B-Sides, more than anything, they remind me of, because it was it was a really snowy Christmas end. They remind me of trudging, you know, trying to get to the student union on Maryland Street, which I know you will know is difficult enough to get to at the best of times. Oh, good There's Lord, yes. a lot of slopes involved. But, you know, sort of skidding through the snow in Adidas gazelles. And, you know, everyone dressed in, like, Britpop gear, which must be very warm at the best of times. But it just reminds me of, when I say a really good time, not, you know, for the usual reasons, but because it felt like not that the rest of the world was being allowed into our interest, but like we were embracing what people like me were interested in for a brief time. It didn't last very long, but it was... I'm finding it hard to put into words because it actually means quite a lot to me. But the one thing that's really emblematic to me that whole time is this CD single. And I think, really, my love for it shows how much fun all of that was and how much people misunderstood it at the time and misunderstand it now, I'd say. And, bringing two worlds together, it was also featured in the MCU, as we found out recently. Yes, it was. It's in Loki, when he meets all the other Loki fans, <laughs> including <laughs> Vote Loki, the alligator Loki, you know, and Kid Loki, I was so pleased with all that and Richard E. Grant's classic Loki but for no apparent reason they are all gathered together listening to Wonderwall <laughs> <laughs> and I cannot well, in a way I cannot think of a more Loki thing to happen well that also means that this version of the song survives literally to the end of time <laughs> in Marvel canon and can there be a more fitting reward for Mike Flowers and his pops and on that very interesting visual I think perhaps we should leave it with a very Merry Christmas to you at home and thank you very much once again Tim for having me and thank you for indulging me about theme from memory (laughs) (laughs) I remembered it
And the Sun by Tim Worthington. The story of Bloodless by My Bloody Valentine, Foxface Alpha by Saint Etienne, Screamer Delica by Primal Scream, Bandwagon S by Teenage Fan Club, and how Creation Records took on the world and nearly won. Find out more at timworthington.org. Postman's always friendly Whistles on his way Full of false sense of Well, you know And you read all about it You ain't going nowhere Sir Cause I leave the country when they get you down When they bring you down Do you think of all the happiness that's served? 